1: I'm Joe Kane. I'm Dan Kane. I'm Sal Kanka. And I'm Wayne Heckler. And this is the Imperfect Podcast. Don't forget to go to hecklerkane.com and sign up to become an Imperfect Podcast insider. To the bumper. <laughs> this week's guest on the Imperfect Podcast is Franz Drain who created the music documentary Hired Gun. Yeah, we got a good chance to talk to him, and it was a lot of fun to see this movie. Well, as musicians, I I, I think I was the first one to watch it. Yeah. That's, and I was just completely enthralled. I had to share it with everybody. I texted all of my friends and said, go watch this damn thing. If you're a musician, you're going to love this movie. It's on Netflix right now. Exactly. Trending film on Netflix. It's been doing gangbusters. filmed in 2016. It has a... Plethora of musical talent from Alice Cooper, Rob Zombie, Steve Vai, David Foster, Ray Parker Jr., the drummer for Billy Joel, the drummer for John Cougar Mellencamp, which I'm ruining the whole thing by not saying their names, which is the Liberty
0: DeVito and, and Kenny Aronoff. Thank you, Joe. You're
1: welcome. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> these, are, these are these are guys I'm huge fans of. Exactly. So so Fran was a, um, a, a music photographer for years. He toured yeah. with bands like Stained and Nickelback and so many others that it's just impossible to name them all. And this opportunity came up for him. He was looking to do something different with his career coming off the road, and he became a filmmaker. He had done a lot of behind-the-scenes videos for mm-hmm. a lot of bands and things like that, which kind of launched him to this place. Um, you know, it was interesting to hear his story on um, how he got an investor to um, work with him on the film, and how he got the whole thing shot. I mean, you know, this film, a documentary like this, hard work. Two years of yeah. two years of labor. Yeah. yeah, you're
0: talking about something that was really a passion project that he just. This was part of his life. He was a part of this community. He was just documenting it the whole
1: time on camera, and now has changed over to, you know, film. And, you know, one of the really great stories was hearing how, um, you know, he he knows George Lucas lives in the same area as him, and getting the music produced at Skywalker Ranch. Exactly. Exactly. Very yeah. cool story. This, this
2: documentary is definitely something uh, to suggest to friends, yeah. uh, especially being musicians. Absolutely. This is something to definitely check Absolutely. out, especially if you grew up eighties,
1: nineties. Yep. Yeah. Whether you're a filmmaker or a musician or somebody that just loves music, this documentary is one to see, and you know, listening to what Fran has to say as a filmmaker, you definitely want to hear uh, and listen to the rest of this interview, so hope you guys enjoy. If you have questions for Fran, leave them in the comments. Don't forget, check out our YouTube channel, and let's hear from Fran. (laughs) Fran, welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. How are you doing today?
3: I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on.
1: Awesome. You're calling in from uh, sunny California, I believe.
3: Well... I'm in Northern California. It's a little sunny but chilly tonight. Oh, yeah. you got a little so, chill, so huh? not so
2: much sun. <laughs> <laughs> Setting up for Christmas time. <laughs>
1: yeah, you guys might have a white Christmas up there or what? <laughs>
3: yeah, not, yeah. not. I anything. live 10 minutes north of the Golden Gate Bridge in a little town called San Rafael, home of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Lucasfilm and all that stuff. Nice. And, uh, you know, I, I run into George Lucas every once in a while at my, at my Starbucks Oh, wow. But he's the most unapproachable person on the planet Earth. <laughs> no. So it's like nobody makes eye contact with him. Nobody talks to him. They know better, you know. <laughs> he's the wizard alone.
1: What I found most interesting about that is that he gets his own Starbucks.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 if anybody wants to stalk him, it's on 4th Street. And, <laughs> they <laughs> wouldn't <laughs> dare. Yeah, <it's>,
1: uh, pretty <laughs> funny. That's hysterical. So you're here to talk about Hired Gun, your latest documentary that's been going pretty crazy on Netflix. I mean, I know it's been a trending uh, uh, um, movie on there. Um, You shot it in 2016. What was the motivation for you to shoot this film, Hired Gun?
3: Yeah, so I I was a touring videographer, photographer for a bunch of artists for a bunch of years. Um, The likes of Stained, Nickelback, Seether— and, uh, I had come off the road, was stained and was going to go into kind of like a sabbatical for a year, just to kind of enjoy life. because I've been on the road for 20 years and I kept getting a call from these guys at Finger death punch. Now I've heard of the band before. I didn't know much about them mm-hmm. and I just knew that they were on the rise and they kept calling. I kept saying no and they finally gave me an offer. I just could not refuse. I just mm-hmm. been a fool to turn it down financially. So I agreed to do it, and uh, started it was a world tour, starting in Tokyo, and going around the whole planet down through New Zealand, Australia, all of Europe.
4: Hmm.
3: By the time we got to Australia, and it's no secret, their singles had some substance abuse issues uh, in regards to alcohol. And I was on the verge of turning fifty years old, and I'm thinking to myself. I'm touring with a band called Five Finger Death Punch. I'm 50 years old. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, (laughs) my life, you know. So uh, I decided to make a film, you know, like really dive in and make a quality, compelling movie and uh, take my chances to see where where it took me. And by the time we landed, you know, I think the last show was in Glasgow, I hit the ground running like two weeks later and didn't stop until the movie was finished. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah.
2: And, and you also did a couple other things before this. Like what happened before? What was your first kind of breakthrough? Was it the Do- Dolly Live or?
3: Uh, no, actually, no. I was a tour photographer for a bunch of years before I picked up the camera. I have no formal education, in filmmaking or photography. It's just uh, hard work. You know, I, I don't really believe in luck. You know, uh, I worked my ass off to to get to this where I'm at right now. So I was on a tour called Tattoo the Earth back in 2000 with a bunch of metal bands as the tour photographer for the tour production. And I happened to just bring a Sony Handy Walkman or, you know, the camera thing. And I'm like, just going to document my memories. And uh, I started shooting some of the bands live. I'm like, wow, man, moving pictures. This is way cooler than just taking a still image, you know. (laughs) So that really intrigued me. And then uh, I was living in Atlanta at the time, and uh, a friend of mine's band called Seven Dust were in the studio with Butch Walker doing a record, and they invited me over just to film some stuff with my little handy cam. And I go in there, and uh, the head of A and R for the record label is in there, I was like, "Oh, you do video?" I'm like, "Yeah, I do video." Do <laughs> of course. Talking about it, didn't even own a computer to be honest with you at the time. This was in 2003.
0: That's like what they tell actors: like if you, if they say, "Can you do?" you go, "Yes, I can." <laughs> <laughs>
3: Thing. Anyway, I got hired to do their bonus DVD. Um, this was a thing when records started to slide a little bit, and they would put a, a company DVD the making of the album. So I was hired on spot, not knowing what I was doing. And mm-hmm. uh, back then, they used to give real money. The label still had great budgets. So I took the, the half of front money they gave me and went out and bought a killer, I think it was a Sony PDF-150 at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh I didn't, I didn't have a computer. I didn't even have to turn on a computer. So I went and bought a, uh, the old iMac, I guess, the egg-looking one. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, Final Cut 2, I think it was back then. Okay. And I inserted it all and opened it up, and it just got nauseous immediately. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I bought Final Cut for Dummies. And that's how I created that piece. And then from there on, it was a really successful accompaniment piece for that CD. And word of mouth, and then here I am today, you know.
4: Nice, cool.
3: So that's how I started out, yeah. So I've done, you know, stuff for so lots of music videos. Um, the Dolly Live in London DVD was really big. Uh, that was my, at the time, that was the biggest thing I'd done prior to Tire Gun, and uh, that got me a gold platinum, a gold album.
2: And then you did something called A Battlefield of the Mind. You edited on yeah. that? You were an editor? What was that about?
3: Yeah, I did that as a kind of a passion project. When I was out with Stained, Aaron Lewis and I are both really uh, into the troops and, and helping veterans or whatnot. And when I moved to the Bay Area, I was shocked at the, the homeless situation. And uh, I started engaging with some of these guys. And come to find out, there were a lot of more veterans returning back from the Afghanistan, Iraqi wars. And I was just like, man, there's got to be a story here. So I did it. You know, it was it was a passion project. It didn't really sell. It just kind of gave it to people. And uh, it did make a difference. You know, it helped a lot of people. And uh, I got to see some of the guys in the film that were homeless actually get their stuff together, get treatment, get jobs, and, uh, you know, get into an apartment, which was really, really cool.
1: Mm. That's very- great. And what was the name of that again? I just want to make sure because we'll put it in the show notes if it's available for people to check out.
2: Battlefield yeah. of the
1: Mind.
3: Yeah, Battlefield of the Mind.
1: Okay, awesome. Yeah, I would love for people to check that out. We, we love to support the veterans as well. So,
3: yeah, for Sure. Yeah. Um,
1: so you, where the motivation for this film, I know you wanted to get off the road essentially. Yes. How, do you go, how do you go from concept to production, and what was the initial concept of this to, to be able to shoot? I mean, it's specifically about studio musicians, so why was it important to tell their story?
3: Well, I'm not going to lie. I had seen 20 Feet from Stardom earlier that year.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And that film really touched me. I'm like, wow, this is a real, it was shot well. Storytelling was, was superb. And I was like, there's another story here like this. you know. And me being in the music field for so many years, I've been in the studio with a bunch of bands, toured with many of them. So I was aware of The Hired Gun, Session Guy and Live. So I was like, that story really hasn't been told, especially like our contemporaries, and uh, and I knew a lot of the people. So I just started reaching out to them. Um, kind of made a sizzle reel first, and we got an investor in who was a good friend of mine. I met through Battlefield of the Mind, who funded just about the entire movie. I'd say 90% of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and I know that funding is one of the biggest issues for any filmmaker, especially in the doc space. Yeah, but uh, I can tell you, man. He came in. He asked no questions. Uh, if I needed something, it was always yes. And uh, his name's Todd and I've got to give him a shout out because he really believed in this movie and took the chance. And uh, and I thank him every day still.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So, what was? Do you mind discussing like what was the budget for a film like this to make a documentary? And how long did it take
3: to produce? Uh, well, I can't give the exact number out. Sure. Kill me. Sure. Uh, we you understand.
0: Know, it only, a lot of people, it's, it's tough sometimes
3: to go, okay, mm-hmm. this was
0: how much it was. So,
3: Right. I'll tell you it was under a million dollars, more than a half a million. Yeah. So somewhere in between that. And um, uh, what was the rest of your question? I'm sorry. Just what, how much did it cost?
1: No. And then how long did production actually last? Like how long did oh. it take to put a piece like this together?
3: Yeah. The process was about two years only because we had to wait for some of these artists to free up because a lot of them are working musicians. So, you know, uh, the toughest one to get was Steve Lukather, because he's hmm. all over the place. And he's like, why should I tell you my story for free when I can go make my own Toto documentary? You
4: know? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah,
3: hey, I, I get that. And then uh, all of a sudden he started seeing Jay Gray, Ray Parker, David Foster, Kenny Aronoff, all his friends in the movie. Uh. He called me up uh, the day before Christmas Eve and was like, I have to be in your movie now. All my friends are in your fucking movie. (laughs) But you've only got to tomorrow. So I flew down Christmas Eve morning, interviewed him all day long, flew home, and he was the last guy we interviewed. Yeah.
2: Who was the first?
3: The first guy we interviewed was Paul Bushnell. He's only got a little teeny clip in the film, which bums me out because the story is really amazing. But we interviewed 65 people. Oh, wow. 30 people made the film, yeah. And uh, he's a great guy, probably one of the greatest bass players I've ever heard. I mean, just really uh, super nice guy, super cool story. Unfortunately, there's only so much time in a 98-minute doc that, you know, you can really tell a story. Sure. uh. How
0: do you go about now, you take a look at all the footage you got, you've gone and interviewed these guys, and how do you now take all this footage and take everything, you you know, you've you've interviewed um, all these huge guys, and you turn around and you go, how do I now assemble a story that's a cohesive story?
3: Right, right, right. Well, that's why I interviewed so many people. It's like I got to make sure I get the best stories. You know, uh, the first guy I reached out to, ironically enough, was Liberty Devito. Oh wow! On the front Nate was telling me about his story. I'm like, that can't be real. That could not have happened. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. Liberty didn't have a manager, an agent, or a PR person. So I hunted him down on Facebook. And just sent him a private message was like, look, man, I'm doing this film. I've heard your story. Is it true? Can we get on the phone? And uh, he called me like a couple days later, and we spoke for a couple of hours. I'm like, okay, you know. And then uh, Rudy Sarza. Of course, I knew about Rudy. You know, I was a huge metalhead growing up. Sure. I know And uh, he was another guy. As soon as we interviewed him that day, I knew that he would be a, a huge piece in this film. And it's crazy, man. I get emails. I look online or Twitter or whatnot, and it's 90% of all the comments are about how awesome Rudy Sarzo is as a human being. Mm-hmm. Forget the baseball for but Just a great person, and it's true. Just solid human being. Yeah. So you know, and all the rest of it is just kind of like, okay, well, this story is really cool. So we had these, you know, like the filter store is its own little compartment. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a few of them. The Bon Jovi thing with Phil Axe, is such a great player, and the story's really, really cool.
0: The, the filter so, story I'd never heard, which I thought was kind of interesting. I, like, as most people know who listen to the show, we're all musicians, so, like, right. watching something like this was, like, very, um, like... We know these guys behind the scenes. We know who they are. Like, the general public doesn't necessarily know who uh, Kenny Arnoff is and doesn't know necessarily who Liberty De- Well, Liberty DeVito, I would say, people so, know.
1: Yeah, if you live on Long Island. If you live on Long Island. Because
0: <laughs> uh, we're from Long Island. You know, we have that, that Billy Joel connection. Um, but, uh, you know, P- the general public doesn't necessarily know these guys unless you're musicians. So looking at this... Uh, it really is an amazing feat to be able to uh, get in touch with all these guys because they're working. Like you said this yeah. before, they're they're working.
1: Yep. And, so, you know, and two years, edit- two years doing interviews. How long did the actual editing
3: take? Well, <laughs> that's the funny story. <laughs> now, there Gavin was, Fisher, had, right? I'm sorry. There was, there was forever, man. We had terabytes and terabytes of you know hundreds of hours of footage. So once we narrowed down who the main uh, stories were going to focus on. We just kind of honed in, and uh, initially our our first editor was Gavin Fisher, who uh, probably edited 90% of the film that you see today, and, uh, you know, I'd sit with him down to see he was in San Diego at the time, so I'd fly down to San Diego, spend a couple weeks with him, and we'd flesh out some of these scenes, and, uh, you know, going in, we knew that that Liberty would be a great guy, so there's a really tense scene in the film where he's playing the drums, talking about getting divorced, and everything else he kicks his drums over so we knew we were going to build a piece on that so i asked him while we we're in the studio i was like start off slow <laughs> and build it up a little bit and get pissed off you're the last guy playing so if you want to destroy the drum kit go for it and he did you know I now. <laughs> so i uh, you know gavin knew my vision for that scene and just nailed it you know and uh, same thing with the rudy sarzo uh, randy rhodes you know plane accident scene that was uh
4: I yeah, you know, wanted to
3: treat that with a lot of respect and, uh, you know, really trust me with that scene. It was super heavy. It was very difficult for him to go there and talk about that again. And uh, I thank him today for that because that, that was, you know, he wears it on a sleeve. You can see it in the, in the footage. That was all real. You know, it was one take. We were all crying, you know, the whole crew. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh,
3: you know, Gavin did a great job. And then he had to step away for some personal reasons. And uh, we had to keep going, you know. So I reached out to a, a guy named Tim Calandrello and he came in and kind of pieced that puzzle together at the last second, and finished it out. I, I edited a couple of scenes. I don't call myself an editor. Mm-hmm. So I got the, the, the pink uh, segment, the just what the doctor order segment, and uh, one more, the Steely Dan section.
1: Okay.
3: Oh, okay. Which there's a cool story I'm going to tell it about that song, and this goes back to some of the filmmakers uh, wanting to know questions about licensing music.
1: True. Sure. Yeah, um, that's a big question that I know Joe had actually lined up. We wanted yeah. to know how how playing music throughout this documentary, how did licensing go? And so well, yeah, you can run with that.
3: <laughs> yeah, we I had the pleasure of finding uh, Julie Glaze Houlihan, who, who was our music clearance person and our supervisor and everybody else. She was so instrumental in getting this this film done and all the music. And we did a favored nation deal with everybody that we all agreed on a fee. And they, you know, luckily for us, everybody agreed to it. But uh, if the filmmakers out there don't know, there's two sides to licensing a song. There's the the publishing side that goes to the songwriters and there's the master recording that belongs to the record label, Mm -hmm. Right. And we had Donald Fagan and uh, Walter Becker, you know, he was still alive at the time, cleared the publishing for us. They gave us permission to use the song. However, the record label denied us the master. So we were like, what are we going to do?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Jay Graydon, if anybody knows, is, is famous for writing that guitar solo and playing it on the, on the record. So I just took a shot. I mean, I'm good friends with Jay Graydon now, and I was comfortable enough to call him. Be like, you still have your studio and all this other stuff. I was like, what do you feel about doing a re-record of the Peg song and recreating that solo? Because here's the situation. He's like, you got any bread? I was like, yeah, man, we got a little bit of money to throw you away. So he's like, I'm in. Give me a week.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. I was like, okay. So man, he came back, and what you hear in a hired gun is not Steely Dan. It's it's. Yeah, that he nailed it. That's uh-huh. cool. So that, that's cool. Not only that, but he used the, uh, the same 1965 Gibson ES-3 that he played on hmm. Steelie and the uh, Fender Twin Reverb, hmm. four years old. I haven't turned the amp on in 25 years. Wow. The-
0: See now, now, you're talking my my uh, scene. Yeah, I'm like gearhead.
3: That's I'm a like great story. story. Here. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's so cool, and then you know we went. I went down and interviewed him for some B-roll stuff, talking about him doing the re-recording. broke out the guitar. It's like you want to hold it, man. I'm like, Are you, I don't want this thing to disintegrate in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> like well, this belongs in a museum, you know? <laughs> wow, it's like a cool guitar. So, uh, so yeah. But um, if you got any more questions about the music, I'm I'm happy to talk about any of that stuff. But that's uh...
0: how do you set up that whole like jam session that we saw. Going through, and you have all these guys that just come in and play. You, you know, you had, you had Liberty and, and Kenny Arnoff playing drums yeah, in the same way. Two room.
1: monster drummers banging. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. you know. Well, before you say that, yeah. I do
2: want to say the editor did a great job of tying that together, right? Because Rob Zombie said, Well, why don't somebody put that type of band together and then there it is?
3: Yeah. 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 Sure. So, so how did one- you
0: assemble that band? Is
2: the question.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd already interviewed everybody that you saw in those jams, right? And uh, lucky for me, that jam happened right around Nam, so everybody was at Nam that weekend.
4: Nice.
3: So I'm like, "Hey guys, I've got this idea of going." We would we did that at East West Studios in Hollywood, is a massive recording studio where so many great classic records were made. Nice. And I'm like, "Would you guys be interested?" I got 19 of the people. So there's stuff in the in on in the can that nobody's ever seen. I mean, we've got like, Corky Hale and, you know, Mark Shulman from Pink's Band does this crazy solo. and <laughs> So many other things I just wish that we could have licensed, but we couldn't. You know, Phil Chen, you know, doing uh, uh, Freeway Jam. So uh, I just called them all out. I'm like, hey, man, I've got this open weekend. Are you guys down to do this? Just come jam. And we had one day of rehearsals. And then three days at East West, and they just killed it. Man, they just all and no egos. Everybody was so cool. It was a nightmare to put together for me because I had to you know produce the the entire film. So I had to go. You know, there's 23 people behind the camera you didn't even see. You know, like crew and art and catering and everything else. And uh, it was a nightmare, but so worth it. When I was on set watching it go down, it was just chills. Mm -hmm. Just I can't believe Brad Gillis.
4: Yeah,
3: ripping the soul over here with Kenny Ernoff on drums, Paul Bush on bass, or Rudy on bass. Yeah, you know Nita Strauss and Phil X and all these <laughs> Michael Herring, just amazing musicians. You yeah. know,
1: and where did the and f- Oh, I'm sorry, the, go ahead, finish.
3: I was going to say, uh, and the guy that produced the the track itself is uh, Johnny Kay, who is a Grammy nominated producer of the year. He did all the Disturbed records, Stained. Uh, three doors down. He owed me a favor because I got him a, uh, <laughs> a recent book with Megadeth.
2: Yeah, nice.
3: Look at those guys, yeah. And I called out my favorites and I'm like, hey, man, I don't have any money, but remember I got you two Megadeth records? <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I was like, I'll fly in because he lives in Chicago and put you up in a hotel, but I don't have any money. So he came in and was so cool, man. You know, just killed it <laughs> under so much stress.
4: Right,
3: Manage all those musicians and change. <laughs> like wow! I don't know how you did it. But,
1: yeah, who yeah. actually wrote those songs? Who was in charge? Like, where did the
3: song ideas come from? For that, yeah, you know, Michael yeah Michael Fish Herring kind of did the blues jam thing at the end.
1: Sure,
3: and, uh, he plays guitar for everybody there. He was in Prince's band for a while. Christina Aguilera, just a fantastic musician, a great person. And uh, but that opening jam, I think it was just Phil X came up with that riff.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know. At the very beginning of the movie.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: kind of jumped in and this freestyle. There was no rehearsal of that at all.
4: Hmm.
3: And then uh, the end jam, they just ran through for like two or three minutes, like, okay, let's just do it. You know? <laughs> really cool. Sure. Yeah.
1: So now, after you've produced and edited and you got this great documentary sitting here in front of you, what's the distribution plan? We know it ends up on Netflix. Was that your first choice? Is that where you know the only place you wanted to put it? What, you know what was what was the plan when you were making it, and did that did you stick to that plan, or was Netflix a diversion? You know,
3: no, not at all. So for me, you know, I wanted this movie to stand out and have legs. Um, we didn't have a distributor at all uh, going into even even the South by Southwest is where uh, world premiered the film. And uh, we had been talking to Vision Films for a while, as well as a couple of other sales agents, and we decided to go with, with Vision. Mm-hmm. And they got us on, uh, you know, they got us to deal with uh, Fathom Events for a one-night screening in 320 theaters across the country. Nice. And we went that round. It did really well. And right after that, <clears throat> I think August 1st, we did all of our VOD. And, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of platforms, and maybe you want to... And did really well. And then Sony came in as our arm of our physical distribution worldwide. I think the film's in 26 different languages.
4: Awesome. And
3: then, yeah, and we got the Netflix deal early on. You know, we did a uh, screening in New York at the Soho house and had all, you know, the dreaded Weinstein company was there. (laughs) Well, yeah, we got got an offer, like, the next day from Netflix to pick it up. Nice. And uh, December 1st, it went on, and it just exploded on there, you know, which was... You know, I wish that the film could have done the same thing outside of Netflix, because if anybody knows, Netflix is just a licensing deal. There'll be a flat fee for like, okay, 400,000 people watch your movie. Here's a dime for every person that watched it. It's Mm -hmm.
0: like, yeah,
3: good deal. but, you know, some people
0: do steer away from Netflix because of that. However, you have become a success on Netflix. Um, Yeah.
3: Look, I feel so lucky. I really do. I mean, it was, uh, it was due to a lot of hard work by myself and our crew and, of course, the cast that were so cool to share their stories with us
4: mm-hmm. that made it
3: a compelling film. And once the people actually get to see it, that aren't going to go spend, you know, the $12.99 at Amazon or, or download it or whatnot. It's great, you know, so happy.
2: It's yep. funny how you know you do things for art that sometimes aren't for the money. You know, because you see, it's like your story hired gun. You know, sometimes it doesn't lead that direction, but they live their whole lives doing it, and here you are doing this great film about that. And it's almost like the same thing. Like we, you know, hopefully I get you get a lot more attention, and you keep going. But you know, sometimes it's just about our art also. And you did a great job, I want to say that.
3: Yeah, the film has done exactly what I wanted you to do, which was kind of elevate my career the next. Next stepping stone, from sure. In of work you had a little.
0: Part. You had a little story that we talked about before we went live on air here, um, and I, I I would love for you to share it because uh, you didn't really delve into it too much. But it's about the mixing process that you went through yeah. to oh, get the sound correct in this yeah. obviously a, a sound music, heavy film.
3: A music documentary needs to have good sound, right? <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> absolutely.
3: Well, any film all the filmmakers know it's more important to have better audio than it is picture. I mm-hmm. mean, if you have nothing, you don't have any sound. Right. So uh, I knew the film would look good. You know, we went uh, as good as we could without using film, you know, which uh, my next project will be shot on film, thanks to Kodak. Uh, we can get into that as well. Um, would love to. But the mix was, a, you know, I was like, okay, I got to find a place to mix this thing. So I'm calling all these places in Los Angeles I live in Northern California and the thought of just going to LA and spending two weeks was not appealing to me. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I know Skywalker Ranch is up two miles up the road. I might as well just see what I know they're going to say no. I mean, it's, you know, huge. So I sent a vague email to this thing, info at com. There's no really formal thing. That's it. They're very locked down.
0: That's kind of generic (laughs) for such a big company. Yeah. (laughs)
3: all they have because i think they want it that way sure so uh i sent them to the sizzle reel a little synopsis i'm like hey i'm a local guy living here in marin county you know a lot of the film you know post was done here uh shot some of it here there's a bunch of musicians here that were in the film and i get an email the next day is like we have to mix this film wow. can we get you a, a bid together I'm like what usually I get the, the first question is what is your budget
4: right
3: we submit a bid so they submitted the bid to me man I gotta tell you it was half of what anything in LA would have charged Wow and uh, I just couldn't believe it and I'm like would you like to come up and do walk through and you know, meet your mixer and all this stuff I'm like
0: duh you know what I mean? <laughs> so we, you can't you can't tell Lucasfilm mm-hmm. that they they you know they uh, <laughs> bid half of what anybody else would have <laughs>
3: It was insane, man. And in they're in their boutique place. You know, I mean, you can't just go in there with a boatload of money and get your. They have to select you to. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. But
2: it shows they believed in the project. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah. So I go there, and our mixer was Scott Lewis. Great mixer. He's won a couple Emmys. That does House of Cars. He just did the new David Fincher Mind Hunter thing and fell in love with the project and uh, killed it. Had such a good time. And the question everybody's like, well, what is what a skywalker ranch like and my questions always like whatever you think it is that's what it is i can't even put it into words you know mm-hmm. and it's like you're driving here you're saying like turkeys and chickens and these wagyu cows and like vineyards on the hill bee farms so anything you eat on property mm-hmm. is slaughtered or grown there including like the apple jam you know, have an apple orchard oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah it's pretty ridiculous but uh yeah, so they, they killed it. And we got to screen it in the Stag Theater. It's 70,000 watts of power. Each seat has a thumper under it. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll never hear my movie sound this good again as long as I live. You know? And it's true that the place was phenomenal. Yeah, really neat. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Another thing I'd like to give a shout-out to also is the score of the film. Um, the stuff that's, that you don't recognize. Sure. Right? Some of the emotionally charged scenes. Um, I had been using library music, you know, for all the temp stuff, and Julie Houlihan's like, you know, this is going to cost a fortune just for even a library music. You'll come out even, or maybe even ahead if you hire a composer to compose an original score. I had no idea. I was like, that's a thing. She goes, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Goes, Here's a bunch of agents. Give them a call. Have them give you some of their their client stuff. I'm like, okay. So I'm getting stuff and I'm listening to it. And I'm listening to it, and this one lady sent me this stuff from the Crystal Method. It was an EDM band in the you know early 2000s. Oh, I know them. them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, this is interesting. You know, would it would it work in a documentary though? And uh, held a meeting with Scott Kirkman, who was the head of the Crystal Method, and come to find out, he was a huge metalhead. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you right now. Quiet Riot was my favorite band on the planet Earth. <laughs> let me score the Randy, uh, Rudy scene. Yeah. Just let me show you I can do it. I was like, okay, no problem. I sent it to him. You sent it back the next morning. I was like, you're hired. You That's know, awesome. I, to week, I think to do the whole thing before we had to go to, to mix. And uh, they did such a great job. There's so much pressure too. You know, again, and uh, I'd work with them again in a heartbeat. And, and the soundtrack. So the score is uh, on you on iTunes, rather, so you can actually buy it. It's so good.
1: Oh, okay, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well. It's yeah.
2: nice when people you work with are passionate about the project as well. It yeah. shows
3: through. Yes. Yeah, I mean these guys do. You know, they do the score for the show uh, House, uh, Bones, tons, um, Fast and Furious Seven.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Like you uh-huh. think about a band like Crystal Method, who was around. I mean, I listened to them in college. You know, right. and it's like, well, what the hell ever happened to them, right? Mm-hmm. They're like they're doing movie scores now mm-hmm. and all this well, other
3: they, stuff. They movie scores, and they were touring, you know.
1: Yeah, for
3: sure. Yeah. yeah. Another little tidbit: um, if anybody watches the film or has seen it, and you watch the uh, Jason Newston scene where Cliff Burton passes away, and you hear the bass playing, yeah, yeah, real no. somber bass. That is, um, oh God, I'm gonna forget his name now. The bass player for Tool. Justin Chancellor. Oh shit! Yeah, so oh, wow. I, I we attempted that scene with Orion from uh, Master of Puppets. I sent it over. Scott doesn't play bass, you know. He plays the keys and scratches stuff. I guess <laughs> he's like, hey, "Did you really have to temp it with this? How do I top it, you know this?" Hmm. So his best friend is Justin Chancellor. So he called him over the weekend and was like, "Would you take a stab at this and see what you can do?" You know. I guess they went back and forth over the weekend. They sent it to me. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you said, you could not play bass. This is amazing. <laughs> 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 I'm like, good grief. Yeah. And, uh, under some of the stuff you have to really listen to for the Randy, uh, Rudy scene is my good buddy, Mike Newshock and the band stained, mm-hmm. uh, wrote some guitar parts for that thing as well. And, um, very, very glad he did that. He came out really great. He was a good guy.
1: Cool. Well, I'm sure this, this film has been already opening up many doors for you. So yep. what's on the horizon? What Are you working on something now? Is there something coming down the pike that you're working on?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I, I shot a, uh, I want to say a pilot called Legacy. And there's this great rock photographer named Ash Newell uh that i know i'm a huge fan of he's a great photographer and he approached me and was wanting to do a program based on capturing the the essence of some of these huge legacy artists in a photograph while telling their story i thought it was a great concept so we collaborate on it together and we shot and we're we're shopping it now and uh, we think we have a home for it um there's a couple other stuff i can't really talk about right now because it's getting finalized and take what sure. has been yeah. I would say there's no less than like four projects right now that I'm kind of, you know, trying to pick which one I really want to do and which would be good for my career, you know? And, uh, i tell you one of them, uh, who revol- revolves around is Ray Parker Jr. Oh,
1: wow. That would be, that's awesome. Well, he was also in the,
0: uh, in the yeah. documentary too. So I guess you developed a relationship with him.
3: He's gone all around the world with me. Look, this guy doesn't need to do anything for me. He's so well off financially. Right. It's staggering, okay? Not just a little bit of money. We're talking astronomical (laughs) hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, why are you doing this, man? He goes, dude, I I love traveling. I love your movie. I love that you put me in it, and I, I appreciate it, and I see how hard you're working on it. And he gave me some really good advice. You know, he's like a mentor almost. You know, I love the guy to death. He's so cool.
1: And he literally
3: went like we went to Australia, we've gone to Portland, we've gone to Chicago, uh, everywhere. I don't know. We've probably spent together twenty times so far. Oh wow. Yeah, and getting to know the guy. Of course, you know, we interviewed him for for higher gun, but there's stuff he left out. He just got home from Japan the night before we did the interview with him, but you Know, I don't know if anybody remembers the uh, or, or is familiar with the uh civil unrest in Detroit during mm-hmm. 1967 with the riots. Mm-hmm. Well, he, was old at the time, and he lived on that street where the riots were happening. Wow, and for him, just getting from school to home to was a big thing, right?
2: Yeah, I love when he said, Um, he said, Um, does it bother you when someone says, Oh, who are you gonna call? You know, like when you hear the same thing right. over there, he said, Why would that bother me? You know, you know, he made an impact on society worldwide.
3: They know that. Yeah, those yeah, uh, you know, that song to me is bigger than the movie ever was. To be right. honest, with you. Yeah. And he gets attacked everywhere he goes. Like, you know, he, <laughs> man, you know and he loves it. He doesn't, he, doesn't <laughs> for granted. he genuinely loves the attention he gets from it. But what people fail to realize is he had a whole career as a side guy. Way before he was even an artist on his own. I mean, he's played with Marvin on the Marvin Gaye records. He played on Superstitious with Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Barry White records. Uh, Diana Ross. I mean, massive. Aretha Franklin.
4: Wow. Patti
3: Labelle. I mean, you know, he wrote songs too for people like Shaka Khan, hmm. Edition, uh Tons of artists he wrote for.
1: Well, if Ray's available for interview, we'd love to talk with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true
3: seconds man he loves doing this stuff i can <laughs> definitely arrange that for you oh my so, god that would be so cool yeah. <laughs> yeah so for me there's really a compelling story there about his journey mm-hmm. yeah. that uh, i think needs to be told and uh you know that's one thing i definitely would love to work on nice. you know very cool
1: awesome well fran thanks so much for sharing your story with us um this was great i mean as musicians like i said we really wanted yeah. to talk to you and hear what your journey was like and what it was like for you to work
3: with all these guys. So we really appreciate you coming on as a fellow hey. filmmaker and
2: musicians. <laughs> rock
3: on. <laughs> yeah. Look, if I can do it, anybody can. It just came from a small idea to, to a reality. You know, the, the, uh, the one thing I will tell all the filmmakers and anybody else out there and musicians as well as what David Foster told me is a little piece of advice. He's like, man, he goes, yeah, I'm good. He goes, but I surround myself with people better than me. And it makes me look better in the end, sure. so don't sure. ever be afraid to like, you know. And I surround myself. Look, my DP uh, and editors and everybody else blow me away, and I welcome it, you know, because uh, they they killed it, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome, man. Well,
3: and if anybody in the L.A. area is looking for sound guy, Thomas Corcoran is your dude. He got the biggest compliment at Skywalker Ranch. Our mixer was like, this is the best sounding consistent audio of a documentary i've ever worked on in my career wow I and mean, that's a testament to his yeah. knowledge and work skills so uh, yeah wow that's awesome yeah, yeah i mean the
1: sound was definitely solid and it was noticeable because yeah. you know i play i play everything through my surround sound at home when i watched it through netflix and so i mean i heard everything it was great
3: <laughs> nice well thanks again for having me on uh thank you. you want to see the behind the scenes footage yep Amazon.com. You can buy the DVD or Blu-ray. There. There's like an hour worth of bonus material on there. It's jaw-dropping. So. Yeah.
2: Oh wow. Okay. Do, do you have any uh, Facebook, anything like that you'd like to share with our audience? Any other contact?
3: Yep. Yeah, I think all our handles are just "Hired Gun Film." Yep. With Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all the like. Yeah. Okay. You go check. It, you'll like it. And, uh, share it with all your friends and family. Yeah. know. <laughs>
0: Fran, thank you very much for uh, spending your night with us. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?"
1: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah ha! In my dentist's office.